0: Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This morning's passage takes us back to the city of Antioch. If you were around a couple of chapters ago, we're talking about a city that prior to chapter 11 was a pagan wasteland. Here we see that the the gospel truly is the power of God, as Paul says in Romans 1, transforming this epicenter of human depravity into an epicenter of global missions, the sending church of Paul and Barnabas. Wrap your mind around that for a moment. Notice the significance of fasting in these verses. Fasting, if you don't know what that is, it's basically an abstaining from some or all kinds of food or drink. You see it done for a number of reasons in scripture to express grief, like we see in the death of King Saul in 1 Samuel 31. See people fast in order to seek the Lord's protection, um, as in the days of Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 20. See people fast to express repentance like the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3. You see people fast in the Bible to express praise and adoration to God, like we find in Luke chapter two, verse 37. People fast in order to strengthen their prayers, Ezra chapter eight, Nehemiah chapter one. And then lastly here in Acts 13, we see people fast in order to seek the Lord's guidance and direction. We're told that it's while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting that the church in Antioch receives direction from the Holy Spirit. It's after fasting and praying that they commission and send out Paul and Barnabas. Which I think brings us back around to the question, if we're gonna talk about the significance of prayer and evangelism in the book of Acts, which we have on a number of occasions, should we not also be willing to talk about the significance of fasting as a church? Keep in mind, these are not weathered souls of the faith. These are not believers that have been around for decades who are going, maybe we should put this thing called fasting into practice. These are predominantly new believers who have just recently been evangelized and converted to the Christian faith. They're desperate for God's direction and so they fast and they pray. And it results in one of the greatest missionary journeys in Christian history, by the way. Notice also the the involvement of both the Holy Spirit and the church in the commissioning of of these two men and their team. We're told that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I've called them to. And then after fasting and praying, they, that is the church, laid their hands on them and sent them off. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts 13, he says this. He says, would it not be true to say that the Spirit sent them out by instructing the church to do so And that the church sent them out, having been directed by the spirit to do so. This balance, he says, will be a healthy corrective to opposite extremes. The first is the tendency to individualism, by which a Christian claims direct personal guidance by the spirit without any reference to the church. The second is the tendency to institutionalism, he says, by which all decision making is done by the church without any reference to the spirit. Although we have no liberty, he says, to deny the validity of personal choice, it is safe and healthy only in relation to the spirit and the church. Paul and Barnabas in this moment can have great peace of mind, knowing that their ministry was commissioned by the spirit of Christ and the bride of Christ. And, and this is not so much an ordination service that we're talking about here, rather in identifying with these men and their team. Similar to how in the Old Testament, um, a person would place their hands on the sacrificial animal being offered up as a way of identifying with that animal. The church here is essentially saying, in sending you guys, we go. We're we're with you in this. And and notice notice that there's an element of adventurous faith here. Like the Holy Spirit doesn't list out all the stopping points on the journey, right? Like It's not like in the first few verses of chapter 13, we, we all of a sudden get, get the pinpoints of the map and the, the various uh, rest stops that Paul and Barnabas and his team are going to make their way uh, into and out of on their way to advance the gospel to the end of the earth. Rather, the Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them similar to God telling Abram, go to the land I will show you. What land is that, Lord? You'll see. It's why we see Paul and his companions on their missionary journeys looking to go into certain regions and the Holy Spirit saying, no, we're not going to go there, or we're not going to go there now. There's this element of faith on the part of both the church and her sent missionaries that sometimes we as individuals are called to step out into the unknown for the sake of the gospel. And sometimes we're called to support those who step out into the unknown for the sake of the gospel, even if they can't answer every one of our questions in the moment. You see, Paul and Barnabas step out in faith on what will end up being the first of of Paul's three famous missionary journeys. Behind me is a, a map of the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Many of you probably have something that looks like this in the back of your Bibles. I know you've spent great amounts of time studying those maps and learning the ins and outs of of those maps. It is fascinating when you get in the book of Acts, you really should dive into that and take a look and and kind of connect the dots because you you begin to see, oh, that's where, you know, that particular story of, of Paul and the, and the gospel and the Holy Spirit overcoming uh, sorcery. This is a place where Paul spoke to the idols of Athens. And you kind of start to trace out this narrative of the book of Acts. You can see even on this map, I don't know if some of you can see based on your angle, down in the bottom right is Jerusalem. A little bit blurry in its wording, but you kind of see the gospel's already started to make its way um, north. East, is that right? Yeah, northeast up into Syria. And now Paul and Barnabas are about to take it off through the Mediterranean landscape, carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're talking about a journey that began a little over a decade after the the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. We're talking about a journey that lasted roughly a year and a half. We're talking about a journey that covered roughly 1,400 miles in a world without escalades. We're talking about a journey that spans chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Acts. So we're gonna be a part of this journey for the next couple weeks. As Paul and his missionary team travel from the island of Cyprus up into the southern province of Galatia. The journey begins in verse four where we're told, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews And they had John to assist them. The first stop on the journey is Barnabas' native land of Cyprus, where Paul establishes this pattern that we'll see throughout the remainder of the book of Acts, preaching the gospel first in the Jewish synagogues, reasoning from the Old Testament that Jesus is the messianic fulfillment of the scriptures, indicating the priority of the Jewish people in redemptive history as God's chosen people, and then turning to the Gentiles when Jewish opposition drives Paul and his team from the synagogue. Verse six tells us, and when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, it's roughly a 90 mile journey from one end of the island to the other, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, verse 9, who was also called Paul, his name shifts here because he's moving into Greco-Roman territory, was filled with the Holy Spirit and looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately we're told that mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 90 mile journey across this island, the end of which they encounter a little bit of spiritual warfare which should not surprise any one of us in this room. The devil and his minions hate the flourishing and the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this case, it's a sorcerer by the name of Elemas, similar to what we saw with Peter in Samaria with Simon the magician back in Acts chapter eight. Luke's subtle way of showing us that Paul's missionary efforts to the Gentiles is in line with Peter's missionary efforts to the Jewish people. We're told that Paul and Barnabas are summoned by Sergius Paulus, the most uh, important high-ranking high official in the province itself who invites them to share the gospel with him. That's amazing, which is undoubtedly a threat to Elymas' prestige and livelihood. You can just imagine Elymas thinking to himself, what, what if the proconsul comes away from this conversation convinced that it's foolish, maybe even wicked to receive counsel from someone like me? He feels threatened, and so he tries to turn the proconsul away from the faith, verse eight, and Paul confronts him. He's not having any of it. He says, your name means son of salvation, but you're a son of the devil. I represent the way, capital W. You represent the crooked paths. You're filled with deceit and villainy. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. In the book of Isaiah, we're told that John the Baptist is predicted as one who would make straight, quote, in the desert, a highway for our God, preparing the way of the Lord as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Elymas, in making crooked the straight paths of the Lord, acts as a forerunner of the devil of hell in seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. As a result, we're told that Elymas is struck blind, which is really God just giving him over to his own longings. You love the darkness? Here, it's all yours. One of the things that struck me this week and actually brought me to tears, was thinking of, of what it must have been like for the Apostle Paul to see that, having himself been blinded and led by the hand into Damascus, going back to chapter nine. Like the grace of God must have, must have just overwhelmed him in that moment. Like that was me. That would still be me. But for the grace of God, who, who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. You just picture Paul breaking out into one of his moments of doxology and praise. We're told that the proconsul becomes a Christian, which is actually supported by inscriptions that have been found in Cyprus, declaring that not only he, but his entire family became followers of Jesus Christ, which is really cool. And a big deal, because Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, that the conversion of those of noble birth and powerful influence is rare, But here in Acts chapter 13, we see God make a straight path to use that imagery from Antioch to Paphos with Sergius Paulus in the crosshairs of his sovereign grace. Verse 13 goes on to say, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia and John left them and, and returned to Jerusalem. Let me just stop there for a second We'll come back around to this in chapter 15. We, we don't know specifically why John Mark left the team. Many scholars believe that it was due to maybe homesickness, possibly fear, as the honeymoon phase of this missionary journey began to wear off. The journey became more treacherous. We do know that Paul talks in Galatians 4 about um, developing a severe illness, an illness that overcame him in his efforts to preach the gospel in Galatia, which is where this story's going in chapter 13. We're also told that uh, Paul tells us that the, the mountains that he uh, encountered in his missionary journeys were filled with bandits. Whatever the reason, Acts 15 will go on to tell us that Paul has a, a very negative reaction to the idea of taking John Mark on any further missionary journeys. But we also know, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, the very last letter that the apostle Paul writes, he says this to Timothy, He says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. It's a reminder of God's restorative grace. Mark the abandoner becomes Mark the useful and even ends up authoring one of the four gospel accounts that you find in your very Bible this morning. Verse 14 goes on to tell us, but they, that is Paul and Barnabas and whoever else might've been, with them on their team. They went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. This is a different Antioch than the one we began, verse 13, hanging out in. And, and we're told that on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. They have no idea the word of encouragement that they're about to get. This is not the, it's not the first time that we see Paul proclaiming the word of God in a synagogue, but it is the first time that we see the content of Paul's message. The very first recorded sermon of the apostle Paul we're about to read in its entirety. And we're told, looking ahead, that it's a message of salvation, verse 26. We're told that it's a message of good news, verse 32. Picking up in verse 16, it says, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, And here's Paul's first recorded sermon in scripture. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Now, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Goes on to say, verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. He's talking about Jesus there. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. They had just been read right before Paul stands up to deliver this sermon. They fulfilled every one of them by condemning Jesus. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, And also, as also it is written in the second Psalm, and now Paul goes back and quotes the Old Testament, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one, Jesus, see corruption, For David, verse 36, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That means he died and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he, Jesus, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Paul's sermon here, very similar to what you see in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, as well as Stephen's sermon prior to his stoning. He lays out a summary of Old Testament history. He shows how its prophecies, people, events, and institutions were all pointing to Jesus Christ as their fulfillment. He shows that the Psalms having to do with David, a point beyond David, to a greater incorruptible king in Jesus Christ. Really amazing to think about is that Paul's repeating the very words that he himself had rejected as blasphemous at one point. Notice There's a pattern here in Paul's sermon. Notice who the great actor and author of redemptive history is. To give away the ending, it's God. Paul says, God chose Israel's fathers, verse 17. God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, verse 17. God led the people out of Egypt, verse 17. God put up with Israel in the wilderness, verse 18. God gave them their land as an inheritance, verse 19. God gave them Judges, verse 20. God gave them Saul as their very first king, verse 21. God removed Saul as king, verse 22, because God sets up and deposes kings in his sovereignty. God raised up David to be their king, verse 22. And God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus Christ, verse 23. Notice that the only thing that man brings to the table is sin. Man did not recognize the savior of the world, verse 27. Verse 27. Man did not understand the utterances of the prophets, verse twenty-seven. Man condemned Jesus Christ, verse twenty-seven. Man asked Pilate to have Jesus executed, though no guilt was found in him, verse twenty-eight. And man buried Jesus Christ, verse twenty-nine. And then Paul comes back around to book in the glory of God, and he says this in verse verses 30 through 33. But God raised Jesus from the dead, verse 30, and God fulfilled his redemptive promises by raising Jesus, verses 32 through 33. In this great story of redemption, our contribution is nothing but our sin. See what Paul's doing here, this highly religious crowd who thinks that they bring something to the table in terms of their own merits in this story of redemption. Paul's saying, no, God is the great rescuer. God is the great author of redemptive history. And he's also the great actor of redemptive history in Jesus Christ, the author entering his own story as a character so that he might live the sinless life that we should have lived but couldn't so that he might bear sin's curse by hanging on a tree in our place, to use Paul's language here, so that he might rise from the grave as the great conqueror of sin and death. Paul then shifts to the application of his sermon, the so what of his message, you might say. In verse 38, he says, let it be known to you, therefore, therefore, in light of everything I've just said, brothers, that though this man uh, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul says, through Jesus, verse 38, sinners can know forgiveness. The word free in verse 39 is the, the Greek word "dikaiao." not to nerd out here, but that, that's oftentimes translated justified or declared righteous. Paul's saying the law of Moses, verse 39, cannot justify us, cannot make us acceptable before God. So many people, particularly in the Southeast, get it completely backwards, wrongly believing, if I obey law, then God will love me, salvation. The problem with that is that the law can show us that we need saving. We've talked about this before if you've been around, but the law cannot save us. In that regard, the law functions like a mirror, revealing to us just how deep and pervasive the sin condition runs in our lives, bringing us face to face with the reality that we cannot clean ourselves up any more than you would grab a mirror off the wall of your bathroom and try to scrub your face with it. Job asked the question, Job chapter nine, verse two, how can a man be in the right before God? Like, on on what basis is God willing to declare a person righteous in his sight? There are droves of people in the world Maybe, maybe some even in this room right now who would say that the needle can and must be moved through good works, which is an amazing thing to think of just in and of itself. The mere thought of, of absolving guilt assumes a forensic problem before a higher power. It assumes a judicial status before a person's maker that, that has to be rectified somehow. And so much of the, the world embraces a plan of self-rescue, self-justification through good works. And we get busy separating the world into good guys and bad guys. And of course, we're always the good guys, right? The problem is, is that most of us, when we make assessments of ourselves, we, we don't do that based on God's holy standard and character, but, but rather by comparing ourselves to people who are more sinful than us. And so you know, just kind of take the next step thing on the scale, whatever it is, like, I'm not a thief, or if I have stolen some things along the way, I'm not a pedophile, and you just kind of work your way up the chain, right? I'm not as bad as, and you kind of fill in the blank. We've talked about this before as well. It it would be as though God said to jump up and touch the moon, to put a finger on uh, the surface of the moon somehow, and some of us in this room could get four feet off the ground because we have mad ups, some, you know, and, and the rest of us can only get two feet off the ground. And the four foot jumpers looking at the two foot jumpers beating their chest saying, look at me, aren't I impressive? And the answer is no, because we're all millions of miles away from the goal, from the standard. what so the apostle Paul means when he says Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all millions of miles short of the standard of God's glory and perfection, and holiness. In other words, self-justification is an absolutely hopeless endeavor. James chapter two, verse 10 says it this way, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Or Romans 3.20, Paul says elsewhere, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. That we cannot justify ourselves before a perfect holy God. On the basis of our own merits, we stand condemned before him. That's what Paul's getting at here. Pronounced guilty in the sight of God. Coming back to Acts 13, Paul declares that, that God is willing to pronounce sinful human beings righteous in his sight, but not on the basis of their own merits nor their attempts to explain their sin away. That any religion rooted in man's attempt to justify himself can only lead to condemnation, not justification and freedom. We're not talking about a trial in which we're innocent until proven guilty. We're talking about a trial in which we've already been proven guilty with no hope of self-wrought innocence. That, That none of us in here can attend enough church services to justify ourselves before God. None of us can commit ourselves to enough community service projects to justify ourselves before God. There's no amount of money that we can drop into an offering plate that would justify us before God. Church membership won't justify you before God. Involving yourself in enough church-related activities won't justify you before God. Think about this for a second. We're, We're in, I guess people still call it the Bible Belt. So so think about this in light of that. Paul's preaching to a crowd far more religiously committed than any one of us in this room as we sit here this morning. And yet he says, God will not accept you on the basis of your own efforts to make yourself righteous before him. Not gonna happen. The law reveals to us our need for a savior, but the law cannot save us. And so the question begs to be answered We talk about it a lot around here. How can guilty sinners have any hope of being declared righteous in God's sight? And the answer is simply by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. That that there are no innocent and guilty people, there are guilty people and Jesus who came to die on behalf of guilty people like you and me, by taking our guilty record upon himself and gifting us his perfect righteous record, by grace, through faith. Colossians 2 verses 13 through14, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, "And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do so? He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. It's not about what any of us do or don't do. It's about Jesus and what he's done. That's the beauty of the gospel. God declaring guilty sinners, righteous in his sight as a gift of grace. And it's a gift that we receive by faith. All we can do is believe. And and even belief, Luke's gonna tell us in verse 48, is a gift of God's grace predicated on divine appointment. John chapter six, verses 28 through 29 The disciples asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Elsewhere in the book of Acts, we'll get there just a few weeks from now, Acts 16, verses 30 and 31, crazy story of a Philippian jailer being converted. Um, It says, then the, the Philippian jailer brought Paul and Silas out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The question for every one of us in this room is this, have you given up on yourself? Have you given up on depending on your own goodness? Have you come to the the conclusion that you cannot make yourself righteous before God declaring Jesus, I believe in you whom the Father has sent. I trust you, I depend on you completely for any hope of righteous standing before God. Philip Ryken says this, he says, we are acceptable to God, not by keeping his law, but by trusting in the only man who ever did, Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, you can declare trust in this Jesus even right now in this moment as you sit in your seat. Paul goes on to declare just what's truly at stake, moving into verses 40 and 41. He says, "Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. be astonished, astounded, and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you." Paul ends his sermon by quoting Habakkuk chapter one verse five, basically saying, "Don't, don't scoff at this gospel message. Don't scorn this Jesus who brings sinners into right standing with a holy God. Eternity hangs in the balance. Today is the day of salvation, brothers. Don't wait till we come back in the synagogue next week. Respond now. There's an urgency to this. Verse 42 gives us the response. It says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine? Almost the whole city? going, We gotta get in on this. Like, this is a different paradigm than what we've heard before. We, we think we're living in freedom, but we're in bondage. We gotta come get some of this. There's initially this peaked interest in Paul and Barnabas' message and ministry, similar to what we see in the early moments of Jesus' ministry in the gospel accounts, and yet it's followed, as was the case with Jesus Christ himself, with hatred and hostility. If you go on to read verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Connecting to Jesus's very words in Acts chapter one, verse eight. verse 48 tells us, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Sobering. One of, the, one of the commentators I read this week said, the people who knew their Bible the best became the most hostile toward the gospel. That's terrifying, particularly in a hyper-religious context like we live in. Well-versed in the scriptures, yet missing the gospel in it completely. Jewish opposition leads Paul to turn to the Gentiles, a pattern that we'll see over and over and over again in the book of Acts as we work our way through the remainder of this story. And God's sovereign appointment, we're told, results in the faith of many, which is an unfathomable display of God's grace. If it's true, going back to a verse that I threw up on the screen just a moment ago, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if it's true that the wages of sin is death, then I would say, say it this way. If God rescues just One, Sergius Paulus as an example. How gloriously unfair. Like fair would be verse 48 reading, none were appointed to eternal life and none believed because all were sinners who fell short of the glory of God. And yet what do we see here? We see an entire community yet again radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gift of God's immeasurable grace. A grace that we can't possibly, with our finite minds and hearts, get around completely. Verse 49, the chapter closes out with these words. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went into Iconium. And the disciples... This is how the chapter closes. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Because like we've seen over and over again, as we worked our way through the book of Acts, God gets the last word in every episode. See, the apostles shake the dust off their feet a well-known gesture to this hostile Jewish crowd, declaring God's judgment on them and disdaining the gospel. Meanwhile, in the midst of all the hatred and hostility, as we've seen time and time again, the word of the Lord, verse 49, was spreading throughout the whole region. Nothing can get in the way of the gospel. No person can get in the way of the gospel either. The gospel will advance and Jesus will build his church because he said he would. And the disciples, verse 52, were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, yet another of the many evidences of God's immeasurable grace, tattooed all over the pages of this chapter of the Bible. Kent Hughes says in his commentary on Acts 13, this last part of the chapter, he says, seriously follow Christ and you will experience a gamut of sorrows almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. But of course, he says, You will also know the joy of adventure with the Lord of the universe and of spiritual victory as you live a life of allegiance to him, the great king. I don't know what runs through your mind, what runs through your heart when you think about Acts chapter 13. This is incredible food for my soul personally, I can tell you that, to see the grace of God saturating these pages of scripture. I'll just give you a few examples of what makes up the list as we close And more came to mind this morning that didn't make it to the screen. We see the grace of God in rescuing Paul out of darkness. We see the grace of God in in turning an epicenter of human depravity into a hub for global missions. We see the grace of God in the unified commissioning of Paul and Barnabas in the sending of their best leaders so that the gospel might spread. We see the grace of God in the sustaining of a fasting, praying church. We see the the grace of God in overcoming demonic oppression as Paul and Barnabas and their team encounter Elemas. We we see the grace of God in the noble and and powerful Sergius Paulus coming to faith. We see the the grace of God in Paul's preaching, not just in in substance, but, but even in the ability to contextualize and engage his audience and speak to their hearts in a unique way. I'm not done We see the grace of God in the fulfillment of his promises in Jesus Christ. He actually did what he said he would do throughout the entire Old Testament. Throughout all 39 books that make up your Old Testament, God proved himself to be true to his word. We see the grace of God in declaring sinners righteous in Christ because we certainly can't make ourselves righteous before God. We see the grace of God in the gift of belief itself. We see the grace of God in sustaining Paul and Barnabas on the journey through all the treacherous paths, through the illnesses, through the hostile opposition and the persecution. We see the grace of God in the nations being exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ that this isn't just for Jew, but Gentiles as well. And we see the grace of God in the spirit-filled joy of the saints of God. Hallelujah. And so all I can say in light of this morning, I don't have anything for you to go out and do. All I can say is may you leave this place overwhelmed by the unfathomable, immeasurable grace of God and may that be to the glory of God. In a moment, we're gonna worship this glorious God of grace in so many ways. There'll be a time of communion where we'll all be able to come Uh, If you're a Christian, that meal is for you and receive the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, and just to sit in awe that as a sinner, the wages that were any of ours in this room was death. And yet because God is a God of grace, he made a way where there was no way in Jesus Christ. And we could celebrate this Jesus this morning in the grace of God, We can allow the grace of God to overwhelm us as we prepare for that meal to come and receive it this morning. There'll be people to pray with and for you in the back of the auditorium this morning, which is another act of worship. It's called the throne of grace that we approach as Christians, the author of Hebrews tells us. And so there's something beautiful that even puts the grace of God on display as we simply close our eyes, or don't close your eyes, I don't care, you don't have to close your eyes to pray, but approaching the throne of of God's grace through our great mediator and high priest Jesus Christ who has torn the curtain of the temple and made God approachable for us, that even us praying is a declaration that God is a God of glory and of grace. Have an opportunity to do that. And then we get to sing of this God, and I'm certain that the words glory and grace and goodness will be tattooed all over that screen in the lyrics of what we're about to sing.